Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Great to have you on board. Today's guest is Susan Slusser. Susan is the longtime Oakland A's beat writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, she's now 30 years into this business and has done it all. Uh, I had never really talked to her about her days covering the NBA. She took over Shaq with the Magic and the old Sacramento Kings teams with, like, Wayman Tisdale and Spud Webb and the L train, all kinds of stuff like that. She also wanted to be a broadcaster uh, when she was starting off in her career, which is super cool. So we got into that. Always interesting to learn something about uh, somebody you know and respect a lot in the industry. And so we had a good chat. Talked Oakland Athletics baseball, baseball in general. I think you'll enjoy this one. Susan, one more, uh, one of the smartest and most thoughtful people in the industry. And as you'll uh, hear toward the end, uh, she's somebody who really cares and uh, really gives it her best. So hope you enjoy this edition of the podcast. I also hope you enjoy the sponsor of this week's podcast, and that is SeatGeek. SeatGeek is fantastic. Longtime sponsor of the Jonah Carey podcast, going back several iterations. Listen, buying tickets tough not easy to do you don't know where to go you don't know where to sit you don't know any of that stuff SeatGeek makes it easy as i've said to you guys many times i've used them on many occasions for baseball and football and concerts and hockey and all kinds of stuff and they're terrific you can find out exactly where you want to sit color-coded map makes it really easy to use it's analytically oriented so you kind of get a sense for oh the bargain's over here maybe it's over here i'm buying a whole plate this time i'm gonna go sit in the bleachers this time it's great baseball season right around the corner of course you can use SeatGeek for upcoming MLB games, and I think that you will enjoy using the best app to buy tickets. And you know what? If you download the SeatGeek app and you enter the promo code Jonah today, that's J-O-N-A-H, but you should know that, you will get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Again, you download the free SeatGeek app, enter the promo code Jonah, and you'll get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, thank you so much for sponsoring the podcast. And thank you, folks, for listening. And uh, quick, quick programming notes. So CBS Sports, uh, you'll um, continue to be with CBS Sports. You'll see me on CBS HQ uh, quite a bit, uh, as I mentioned later on in the podcast as well. So look for all of that. That's basically me on video talking all kinds of baseball. Uh, also be doing some writing for CBS Sports. And I'm excited to tell you that I will be writing for Sportsnet as well uh, during the coming season. I did a little bit for Sportsnet here and there last year. We're expanding that role. Sportsnet, huge in Canada, of course, uh, and uh, they do all kinds of great things from TV and radio, which I'll be doing a little bit of, uh, to writing, which I will be doing consistently throughout the season. You will see me uh, once a week throughout the year at Sportsnet, starting with uh, some of the pieces that you know and love very well, a lot of my preseason content. Uh, you will see at Sportsnet as well. And as we get solid dates on when stuff will get published, I'll let you know. But March should be a lot of my stuff going up. Uh, some of my favorite pieces right all year occur right before the season starts. So look for all of that at Sportsnet.ca along with CBS Sports. That's where you will find me for the 2018 season. Very, very excited to work with the folks at Sportsnet. It should be great. So there you go. Here is the latest edition of the Jonah Gary Podcast. It is with Susan Slusser. Enjoy.
tonight. I'm excited about this episode of the podcast. She is joining us from spring training in Arizona, one of the best in the business. It is Susan Slusser. Susan, how's it going? Uh, it is always great to talk to you, Jonah. It makes a very nice break in, in spring training to talk to you. Well, listen, Brandon Moss is gone from the team, so I feel like we're all in mourning a little bit today. But uh, no, it, it's interesting, too, because the A's, if you go back several years, this whole fly ball generation thing and, oh, we're going to uppercut and this is how it's going to work, it feels like the A's were on this earlier than anybody else. They quietly went and got these you know, big dudes who hit home runs and strike out. And, and, and it, it's almost like a flashback to Moneyball in a sense. It's a bunch of Jahas. It's a bunch of Geronimo Barroas. It's a bunch of stuff like that. And Moss fit the bill. Uh, but maybe we're five or six years in and now it's going to pivot again. You know, that we've, we've got guys going the other way. What do you make of the A's and their attempts in the last few years? And I want to get to long-form journal stuff too, but just the Moss thing really resonated. What do you make of that in terms of them trying to get ahead of the curve every single time. It's like we look back, we see the trend, it's fully formed, then we look back and we say, oh, yeah, Oakland was on this before anybody else. Yeah, I mean, that year when when uh, Moss you know, signed a minor league deal with the A's, yeah. let's not forget, which was, was crazy in and of itself with the season he wound up having. Uh, and Cespedes was there, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and a num- number of other guys that, that hit, you know, Josh Reddick had his, his best power season ever. I, I do think the A's were on that trend early. They're, de- they're clearly backing away from it. Now, Moss, the current Moss situation with the A's letting him go, he was just a means to get Ryan Bookter, a creative means, you yeah. know, they couldn't afford a decent left-hander on the, the open market. So they acquired one through, essentially through the Royals, a bunch of cash to get one. So, yeah. uh, Yes. And the interesting thing is, if you look at the way the A's are trending now with how they are currently building their team, for the first time in some time, going back to maybe the late 90s, they are going very athletic. That's what their focus most recent thing is. They're finally going for a little bit of speed and guys who are, uh, you know, toolsy, for lack of a better better word. So I think that really, especially when you look at the trades they've made mid-season last couple of years and the kids they've brought in. It's been athletic guys, speed guys. Hmm, interesting. All right, well, we'll get to more Oakland and MLB in general, but uh, I want to take a deep dive here. As I said to you, you know, it's a different format with a newer podcast. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that you and I have really had that kind of long-form conversation. Like, I've never asked you about the NBA. I, I make no bones about the fact that I, I'm a basketball guy. I love baseball, but I love uh, having been in basketball. So maybe we can go all the way back here and tell me about kind of your path in journalism, you know, going to Stanford. I mean, was this, you know, as a kid growing up, were you just, oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to be a sports writer? Did you have other ambitions? Did you fall into this thing by accident? How did it come to be? Because I feel like everybody seems to have their own path, and I'm always curious. Yeah, I wanted to be a baseball broadcaster. I wanted to okay. be a play-by-play person, which um, I did. I was lucky enough to go to a high school that had a radio station. Um, and obviously, I always did both. I always did both. I wanted to do something in sports, but I particularly wanted to do a play-by-play in baseball. Um, so I worked at the radio station in high school, and then in college, uh, I did football, basketball, and baseball at Stanford on the air and, and for the Stanford Daily. Uh, I was the color announcer for Stanford football, which was a little – I don't think I fit the uh, mold of the usual football color announcer. Right. Uh, but it was absolutely fantastic. The the Stanford went to uh, play Arizona in Japan that year. They oh, played wow. in the Gator Bowl. Uh, so, yeah, it was really uh, – that was fun. It was a fairly decent team. Back in those days, uh, obviously they're good again now. And then in Stanford baseball, um, I was the play-by-play person when they won their very first College World Series. So uh, in Omaha in '87, 
and called Paul Carey's Grand Slam off Ben McDonald, which oh, was, wow. um, remains a career highlight for me. Nice. <laughs> Low these 30 plus years later. Uh, and, and that's really what I wanted to do. But uh, I interned at uh, a local radio station. I interned at a local TV station while I was in college. And then com- right coming out of college, I had a internship offer at the Sacramento Bee. And the guy I did Stanford baseball and football with, David Fisher, got a job in minor league baseball. He went to Quad Cities, uh, Iowa, and did the Quad City River Bandits. And it was one of those minor league jobs where I think he was like also the PR person and the morning drive time guy and, you know, working 18 hours a day for almost nothing. And I had this pretty decent internship offer in the B and, and I thought, okay, well, I'll do this for the summer. And it, it, <laughs> it wound up essentially being a newspaper job in, hmm through now yeah (laughs) i stayed at the b for six years and i I loved it and you know i do every once in a while i think maybe i should have tried um a little bit harder pursuing uh maybe a minor league job but uh you know a job in hand in northern california versus going to quad cities iowa and (laughs) and working 18 hours i I guess i I probably didn't have what it took to to for a and i there at that time obviously there were no women doing play-by-play right in major league baseball so it might have been a tough road. But anyway, I'm very happy with my career. But yes, my uh, my first pro uh, full-time beat was uh, as an NBA writer in Sacramento. I was the NBA writer um, in my last two years when when I was there. And that was that was a blast. We had a, a beat writer, obviously. Marty McNeil was the Kings beat writer then. Uh, the Kings weren't very good. but Which they were. This? It, this? This was in the mid-90s, so 93, 94, 94. 92, 93, 93, 94. Yeah, so the Mitch the Richmond years. Sacramento Kings right yeah. Now, so we could get into yeah. Lionel, Lionel. L train. Oh wow. You're yep. the L train. Yeah. Which is Spud Webb. Spud Webb. Oh boy. Was a deli- absolutely delightful. It was Tisdale? a real, it was a night. It was not a good team. Yeah. Wayman Tisdale. It was oh, not a good team, no. but it was a, it was a fun team. Bobby Hurley, his first Bobby year, Hurley, uh, wow. there. And in fact, the first major sort of national story I ever covered was when Bobby Hurley was in the car wreck. I was the first person oh, yeah. at the hospital. And the first person I saw was Mike Poplowski, just, you know, kind of covered in blood and shaking. And oh, my God. I knew that was, you know, that was a bad scene. And as it turned out, um, it was an amazing story, really, because they took Bobby Hurley after this horrendous uh, accident right outside the Kings Arena. They took him to in the, you know, obviously late at night after a basketball game to the one hospital that had the one surgeon who could do this absolutely life saving oh operation on him. Um, it was in, uh, it really incredible. So. Um, after that, I went to Orlando to cover the magic for a year. I always wanted to do baseball and I had been the backup baseball writer in, in Sacramento for a number of years at that point. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I had wanted to do baseball full time and one of our baseball writers, our A's writer at the time, Ron Krejcik, wanted to get off the baseball beat. And for some reason, the B was hesitant to make the switch. So when I got the job offer in uh, Orlando, I went to cover the magic for a year and that was the year. Uh, 94, 95, when the Magic went to the finals, and yeah. it was Shaquille O'Neal and oh, Penny boy. Hardaway and Horace Grant and Nick Anderson and just a, I mean, I cannot tell you what a fun team that was to cover. I really, I really enjoyed that year. Uh, I lived right downtown, almost near the arena. I could walk to the arena if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Walking distance to the, I loved the newspaper at that time. The Orlando Sentinel was a really excellent all-around. Yeah, newspaper. Jamel came I from there. Lots the of good people. Staff. Yeah. Yeah, I loved the staff. I loved the um, the editors. Uh, you know, it was really um, ex- I for California. The only thing I struggled with was living in Central Florida. Was I think yes. not? Uh, and no. <laughs> my now husband, my now husband, then boyfriend, was was still in the Bay Area. So, 
I knew at some point I was, you know, I was trying, hoping and, and trying that at some point I would get a, a baseball job. Um, but that, that year was, was, uh, really, really special. Shaq was so fun to cover. Yes. Uh, Penny Hardaway was, was, I mean, absolutely a dream. They were all wonderful. Horace Grant was as cool a person as I've ever seen, mm. dressed impeccably, you know, said all the right things, just, uh, it really, really, really a, a great year. And I, the Sentinel was the only paper in town. You know, there were some suburban papers yep. and um, bigger Florida papers that would come in, but nobody else that traveled. So uh, it was a little strange. Um, but at the end of the year, when they went all the way to the finals, it, you know, they turned into a pretty big deal. And that, that was a blast. And going from that, you know, covering a team like that got me a job at the Dallas Morning News, where I then covered the Rangers for two years. So it all, it all worked out well. And then I wound up back in the Bay Area. I have 30 million follow-up questions. Um <laughs> Shaq, lots of stuff, career stuff, but I want to ask you about um, you and Dan, if that's okay, because I find sure. it I find it really interesting when two people from the industry end up together. And you, you mentioned it; you had to go. You know that the industry is what it is, and you got to go to Orlando. You got to go to Orlando. You got to have a long distance relationship. You got to do all that stuff, and and it's challenging. This industry will grind you down. You know, it's, it grinds a lot of us down, no matter what. And for two people to have to deal with that. Does that become a support system? Do you think, ah, oh, God, I'm pursuing this thing, but I'm away from the person that I love for this long? I mean, it's, I would think that there could be advantages and disadvantages to that kind of thing, uh, you know, given how complicated the industry itself is, leaving aside, uh, you know, the nature of the relationship. Yeah, you know what? I mean, certainly there were, there were some tough times during that, uh, but we were both pretty young at the time. Uh, I think when, when I left Sacramento, I was 28. I think Dan was 24. He's a little bit younger. Um, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and he was really just sort of getting his career started and he working at small papers here and there. And when you work at a small paper, you're doing everything and your hours are insane. Yeah. So um, it was almost, you know, I was gone for two and a half years between Orlando and Dallas, maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, and once you start covering a beat, as you know, Jonah, you wind up with all these miles and hotel points. I was actually back home, you know, sort of for long weekends or, yeah. you know, he was coming to Orlando or Dallas. So it was not awful. But when I went to Dallas, it actually wound up working out really well because I, I told the morning news I'd, I'd be happy to come there. But my boyfriend's in the business. He lives in California. Uh, if you would really like me to come there, if you have a job for him. And they offered him a job. And I'd already accepted the job when he came out and kind of went went around and visited all the – they were hiring him to be a layout guy, as you know now. Obviously, he's a writer. But they were talking to him as a layout guy. And uh, hmm. he went to all these different meetings, as you do when you're talking to a paper. Yep. And afterwards, he said, you know what? In every one of these meetings, it seems like all anybody did was yell at the layout guy. It, it seems awful. And he, at the same time, called the San Jose Mercury News, who he'd been talking to. He was working at the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. He called them and said, hey, I've got a job offer from the Dallas Morning News. Do you, you guys still have any interest in hiring me at some point? Because I'd kind of really rather work for you. And they said, we don't have a job, but we're going to create one for you. Oh, he's, wow. He's been, there, he's been there ever since. So thanks, Dallas Morning News, for being <laughs> kind of kind of jerks to Dan or to the other layout guys when he was, when he was there. So, uh, yeah, kind of a happy story. And at that point, we knew we were focused on getting back to the Bay Area. There you go. Yeah, my girlfriend Amy is decidedly not in the business. And so this idea, I'm just always fascinated by it and she's like oh, this, this is like it's not for me i don't i don't imagine that uh you know everybody can hack it so it's interesting that uh that, that was able to work out so well i want to ask you about um the broadcasting progression because like i've had boog shiambi on the podcast and boog has the richest butteriest voice in the history of the world and that's how he talks <laughs> in real life and he's the nicest guy and he's, he's just the best 
And and I've asked him, I've asked Shulman about this. Shulman, of course, has a great voice too. These people who just, you imagine that they're seven and they're talking, that somehow their voice is broken like six years before everybody else and they talk that way. And and it's interesting because the industry, it, you know, has biases. And one of those biases is toward men and this idea of this, well, this classic voice, things like that. When you initially were making a go of it, and I guess it's a little bit different on campus, but, you know, you're attempting to do so professionally after that. Did you run into bias? And if so, was the bias about your gender? Was it about, well, you can never have that archetypal voice? Because I'm, I'm, I'm just... I, this is not a conversation that I've had with with any woman about the idea of broadcasting, and and you sort of in your mind you could sit back and you could be like, okay, Kurt Gowdy, you know, this is what I picture as a broadcaster because it's just it's just old white dudes typically. So, how was that for you? Did you try to, you know, come up with a lilt that wasn't necessarily your own for the sake of fitting in? Did you just say, no, this is me, take me or leave me? How did you go about that? And uh, no, I never had anybody say one word to me about, um, and in okay. fact, you know, but, um, when Stanford was making that, uh, big run in the 87 world series, ESPN was not on the Palo Alto TV system. Palo, mm. Palo Alto was a strange kind of little system unto itself. Okay. And everybody had to listen to, uh, KZSU, which is the Stanford radio station. And it was nothing, it was nothing but nonstop compliments. I mean, a lot of it was because the baseball team was good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the feedback was all great. Now, okay. Stanford is, Stanford is a different place than, you know, many other schools and, and yeah. certainly the, a real world broadcasting job but uh you know i i do an awful lot of tv and, and radio still now and i've never had any bad feedback to my knowledge <laughs> about yeah. my voice and when i was at the i think it was the covering the stanley cup two years ago uh my, when the sharks were in it mike emmerich said you've got a fantastic voice for broadcasting and i was like oh well thank you i'm a writer so <laughs> it doesn't do me much <laughs> well it's good. doc that's um, that's a nice i mean that's 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 a good compliment doc yeah absolutely i was like i'll take it but i'm I'm in the wrong business, but yes, that's, that's nice to hear. So maybe hockey, maybe I'll start doing some hockey. Oh, dude, I'm in. I would, I would 100% listen to you on a hockey broadcast. Um, I want to ask you about Shaq. Uh, I had Shaq on my podcast, I don't know, two years ago, something like that. And, uh, it was at the Turner studios and it was like before half, that was basically the second quarter of some random game. They brought me into the green room and I sat with him and I didn't know what to expect. You know, you just, when people have this big a persona, you don't know. And he was winking at me the whole conversation, it, it, you know, it, and I mean, almost literally like actually closing one eye, doing the persona, doing all this stuff. And it's not that he wasn't genuine. It was that he said himself, he rode this to superstardom, that he was a fantastic basketball player and obviously would have made a lot of money and all that, but that he was going to take on this big Aristotle, big this, big that. The dude is smart. And I don't mean just smart. I mean, like, he's a step ahead of the rest of us, it feels like. And, and just talking to him, I found it fascinating. And, of course, you know, I'm not saying of course, but maybe it was a different experience for you that he would have been, I don't know, 25 or something like that with the Magic. What did you find about him other than the fact that he was yeah. a great basketball yeah, like player? That. Yeah, yeah. was it similar? Yeah, I, he, I mean, he was always incredibly media savvy. Yeah. Incredibly media savvy. Yeah. And, the, and the NBA in general in those days was – uh, very media focused, you know, they, they needed, they were trying to make the push to become kind of America's sport. And right. I think they emphasized personalities. Um, this is, a, we could have a whole talk about baseball and then how much baseball needs to do something like this. We're but, going to. 
Yeah, <laughs> they need to. Uh, Shaq was, yeah, definitely, he's got the natural charisma anyway. Yes, yes. But he was so smart, people would go, oh, you're so lucky to cover Shaq, he's so funny. And the thing I would tell people was, yes, he's great, but he, he knew that in every city, he needed to come up with like a little shtick or a little joke. Yeah. And he did it in most towns. And by, by the end of the season, I had heard some of the same jokes and stories, you know, <laughs> dozens of times. So, but he was prepared and everybody got like, Oh, he's so great. He's so funny. I was like, yeah, I've heard that one six times now, but, uh, he was, he was fantastic to me. Yeah. Uh, and I think most of it, he's, he had a lot of women beat writers covering him. Selena Roberts was right before me. And oh, so yeah. he, he usually either called me Selena or, um, Dude, bro, man. Um, there were all sorts of, yeah, it uh -huh. was, it was great. Uh, -huh. uh, bud. Um, it was very funny. And then all the next beat writers after that, women that covered him, I think Teresa might have been next and, uh, they called, he called them Susan. He was always sort of one off, <laughs> but I, it always made me laugh when he called me bro. Um, he, but he, yeah, he was phenomenal in the NBA as opposed to baseball. One of the things I did not like is there are so many days off and you have to write all these off day stories. Yeah. And when you've got a good team, and this is true of any sport, off day stories can be tough, right? At the NBA, it's, it's even worse because there's so few guys. There's really only six or seven guys that kind of matter. Yeah. So you wind up, um, there's no issues because it's a good team and there's very few guys you can left to profile. When you know, that year, the big issue with the magic, the only one was Shaq's free throws. So I wrote so many stories. Right. Can't shoot free throws. What's he trying now? I talked to other experts and he, you know, by the end of the season, he was like, Oh, please give it a rest with the, with the free throw thing. And then as it turned out, Nick Anderson's inability to hit oh, free yeah, throws was what cost them in the finals. And I thought, I have been, I missed the big story throughout this whole year. I've been writing about Shaq and his stupid free throws. I should have been writing about Nick Anderson. Uh, you know what? Let's, I, I wasn't going to go there, but let's, let's talk about that Anderson thing because that's an interesting one as a writer because it's, Here's this flashpoint moment that's obviously was the downfall of the team. I mean, listen, they could have won other games. We could, you know, butterfly effect this thing to death, but that cost them. How do you, how does one cover a story like that and do it well beyond the obvious? Nick Brick 2, we, you know, team loses. Do you try to go back into your reservoir and say, oh, I talked to Anderson after the 37th game of the year and it seemed like the guy was lacking confidence? I mean, how do you amalgamate the information you have on the guy, then get with him that day and come up with something that is informative, sensitive to the subject, but not necessarily flinching? That, that's, that, I imagine that's got to be a pretty tough story to write to do it, you know, sensitively, but, but poignantly and effectively. Well... This was sort of pre really internet days. Yep. You know, there was internet, but this was when we were still focused on the next day's paper. Yeah. It was an overtime game on the East Coast with, I think, an eight or nine o'clock start. So really all I did was type in what happened and press send. Huh. I mean, I came back the next day with a lot of, a lot of stuff, but you know, this, but by the, you know, we didn't re write through for the internet back then. I mean, I don't think that anybody even got any post game quotes in. So, yeah, yeah. Wow. so there, we all complain about the internet now and the demands, 24 hour seven kind of demands of the internet and Twitter. But, uh, it's certainly better from that, you know, working for an East Coast paper, uh, on that kind of deadline with an overtime game. Uh, I, th I'm sure there were a lot of readers that probably didn't even get the final game in, in the paper. That does, that wouldn't happen now. Now, certainly if you're a paper subscriber, you, you, sometimes that will happen to you, but you can just go online and see what, it, yeah. you know, what, transpired and get the quotes and, and all of that makes for a longer day certainly for writers because you know we just pack up and leave before 
you could probably sit and write all night if you wanted to. But in an instance like that, it would have been warranted. And, and the next day, you know, Nick, Nick was terrific and he handled it really well. But, mm. you know, in retrospect, that was, a, that was it for that franchise. They've done nothing since. It sure. was almost a curse and, in some sense. So you don't kind of realize though, and that, you know, the kiss that was early in the series, I think that was the first game. Yeah. And, um, the, uh, you don't know what's going to happen. So at that point, he doesn't, nobody really realizes this is the monumental impact of, of those free throws. But, uh, yeah, was, that was crazy. All right. So let's get into the baseball thing. And I've, I've talked to a few other people about this, but I really do want to help baseball. It's just, why isn't Trout as big as LeBron? You know, it's it just, I, I get it, but I sort of don't get it. And, and the thing that, that resonates for me is sometimes I'll be on whatever, CBS Sports or some major website, and, or, well, ESPN is a good example because they advertise their own stuff, right? So they'll say, coming up tonight on ESPN, there'll, there'll be a big banner ad above a Zach Lowe column or a Bill Barnwell column or something. It'll just be, the Spurs are playing the Timberwolves. And you'll just think, well, if the Twins were playing whatever the San Antonio equivalent was in baseball, we wouldn't be freaking out about it. And yes, I right. understand that baseball is a long season. It's 162, but 82 is not nothing. And we make a very big deal about the fact that Carl Anthony Towns is going to go up against LaMarcus Aldridge or whatever. How is it that the NBA has cracked this and baseball hasn't? What is the problem here? How do we get over this thing? Baseball seems to not encourage big personalities or lots of fun. You know, every time there's a Latin player who um, has a you know, outrageous bat flip yeah. or shows some personality, everybody is so quick to condemn it. And people go and find quotes from, oh, that's just not the way we play kind of stuff. Uh, big person, guys with big personalities seem to get, you know, a lot of backlash. Bryce Harper hears it, you know, anytime it's, it's a very regimented follow the rules kind of sport. Last year when Bruce Maxwell decided to become the first and still only yep. baseball player to kneel during the national anthem, um, we kind of wondered, is anybody else going to do this? And then you, you realize, no, nobody's going to do it. It's baseball. It's such, so rules following. It's just the fact that he did it at all was astonishing and he won't be doing it this season, especially after all his legal issues. But one thing that drives me nuts in, in sports journalism in general is yeah. when somebody speaks their mind freely and says something outrageous, something different. People pile on. Journalists pile on. Richard Sherman is my favorite example of this. Yeah. Um, he'll say something. He's a smart guy, really yeah. interesting. But Stanford. he'll say some pretty, pretty Stanford guy, mm -hmm. says some pretty outrageous stuff. And the, the rush to um, bash him is extreme. And I always want to say, like, wait. This guy is giving all of you stories. These are great stories. He's showing personality. We always go, why don't people speak their mind? Well, this is why. It's because people, when you speak your mind, people automatically kind of come out of the woodwork. Not just, you know, trolls on Twitter. Journalists come out and start ripping guys. So uh, I think we can't have it both ways. You know, do we want everybody to be boring and say nothing? No, of course not. You want personalities. But baseball, I think, especially is that they, they tend to be careful. The teams tend to be careful. PR departments seem like they are taking a heavier hand when it comes to sort of, you know, guiding guys by the elbows during interviews and, you know, turning them away if something seems like it might start to turn a little bit interesting. Instead, Major League Bit, you know, they talk about pitch clocks and, you know, all the new, the pace of play rules. What will get people watching is personalities. Yeah. The, the inning delays and the commercials, that's, that is one thing. They're too, the, the inning delays are too long. But it's big personalities. That's what drives sports now. You're exactly right. If you can set it up, this is Bryce Harper against, 
you know, whoever that that's going to go a long way toward it and have some fun with it. How let let the Latin players enjoy themselves and, and anybody that has been to a game in the Dominican Republic or Puerto Rico or Mexico knows the energy and the, you know, it's the fans are into it and everybody's kind of going nuts. You just don't see that here. Does this require the media to make more of an effort to be bilingual? Does it require fans to not be on average 56 years old and white and from <laughs> Iowa? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just saying maybe this sport is so overwhelmingly tilted toward white folks and, and in the case of consumers, older white folks that we can't get there. And it feel, it's, like, it's like a chicken and the egg thing because it's what we want is to have fans that are every color of the rainbow, male, female, and hopefully tilted young so that they'll be into it and their kids will be into it. I, I don't know how to get there. Is it, it does the national media, does do local media need to step up and just be like, I'm going to be perfectly bilingual. And if, you know, whoever uh, player X, if it's Puig has something to say, I'm going to be in the trenches. I'm going to be able to translate it. D- does the media have a responsibility to help in this? We're not supposed to be cheerleaders. We're not supposed to help the revenue of the sport. But if the sport isn't going to do it, then I'm trying to figure out who else will do it because the players don't seem to have the latitude to do it. Well, it's not our responsibility to help their bottom line. But sure. I mean, if you're covering a sport and devoting um, resources to covering a sport, it's going to help your bottom line if yes. the sport is popular. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think being I, I would I have tried to learn Spanish fluently for so many years. I did Spanish immersion in the Dominican, oh, wow. um, but I am not bilingual. It's so hard to become bilingual. Yes. Um, and I don't think it's a requirement um, because it's going to be, you know, I, I, when you're seeing more and more bilingual baseball writers all the time, which is fantastic. Yep. Um, but the languages I took were um, should have I should have done hockey because I took French and Russian. <laughs> darn it. Darn it. But uh, the fact that Major, Major League Baseball has taken steps toward this. Now, every team has to have an interpreter for the Latin players. Yep. And, and many have two. Um, which is a big change. And there, it's even down in the minor leagues. We're also seeing Major League Baseball is making a much better effort at teaching English to the Spanish speaking yes. players. Um, a lot of teams are really like they're, we, we're finding all the kids that have come over in trades, especially from teams like the Yankees and Cardinals. Mm. Man, their English is really good. Wow. So I, th- I think that, um, I think those efforts are all, all helpful. But, yeah, celebrating the Latin players who are the ones that are really bringing the flair to the game right now, I think that would be a, a great way to go. Uh, but also just sort of letting people be who they are and, and you know, not – now, Mike Trout obviously is the best player in baseball. He is not a personality. No. He, he doesn't – he does not want to be the guy. Yeah. You know, he doesn't want to be – he's not going to come out and say anything crazy. He doesn't want to be the – poster boy for major league baseball he just wants to play which fair enough but the guys that want to take on that role oh man just celebrate the heck out of them baseball that that would be fantastic there's a new way to get the latest scores news and highlights for baseball and all your favorite sports cbs sports hq it's a brand new 24 7 streaming channel covering the biggest games best plays and crucial insights from around sports you can stream it free anytime on the CBS Sports app for T- Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire, your phone, and other connected devices. And guess what? I'll be on it very frequently. Or you can also watch it online at CBSSportsHQ.com.
It feels like Carlos Correa is on the Jeter career path, right? He just started. He's got a World Series. He's outrageously good. Uh, Percival, very good looking. He reminds me of Alex Rodriguez. He reminds me of young Alex Rodriguez. It feels like that's it. Not that it has to be one guy to galvanize around. I love Lindor. There's a lot of players I like. Altuve. Altuve. Yeah, it feels like there's just this generation of, of Latin players in their 20s now who are really good. Altuve should be Steph Curry, right? He's not only good, but it's like... That guy's good. You look at him and he becomes more accessible than if Shaq is doing it because, you, you know, a young kid is not going to grow up and think I could be Shaq, but think, oh, I could be Steph Curry. I could be Jose Altuve. You could be 5'6". You're not actually going to be Jose Altuve because he's, you know, one of the five best players on the planet. But that accessibility feels like it's there and it feels like there's opportunity there. That Houston team is loaded with guys. Bregman's an interesting cat, too. Speaking of somebody who's trying to be bilingual, how many stories have been written about him bridging the gap and doing all this stuff? He's really good. Uh you know, there's potential there. There's a generation of guys uh, right now who are really good and could be that way if we can just find a way to to tap into it and tell the world about them. Absolutely. I think I he, that Houston team is a, a fantastic. What we need is somebody like that in New York. Now, Aaron yes. Judge is phenomenal. He'd yeah. be great to be. But he has he's on speaking of the Jeter path. He's on the Jeter path when when it comes to personality. He's not showing enough. He's yeah. very, very corporate. Yeah. Um. And doesn't see, you know, he doesn't want like people doing in-depth profiles or talking to his family, um, which is a little bit of a shame. New yeah. York needs baseball needs New York to have a big star who has personality, I, and he does have personality. He's just very careful. Yeah, and I understand that. Maybe in his second year, maybe he'll be a little bit more uh, willing to kind of be take on some of that kind of stuff. But certainly, the Yankees have some different candidates for that for sure. But Houston. You know, maybe they can become like the the Lakers were, you know, with a um but it's it's always nice when New York has a big face. Yeah, Stanton maybe could be that guy. Although I love Didi Gregorius. If Didi Gregorius had Stanton's power, we'd be all set. He's a great player, but he's just not a fifty home run guy because he's fascinating to me. And I haven't spent I haven't talked to him too much, but everything that I've heard from other people is, oh yeah, he's that kind of character. So it's interesting. Um let us discuss uh the BBWA you becoming the first woman to serve as president of the BWA. And I want to get into the group in general because I always find it fascinating. And I think that, you know, I've been in that room and I understand the conversations that take place, but I think to the outside world, you know, the perceptions are just whatever kind of trickles out. It's, oh, well, the BBWA as a whole didn't vote for <laughs> so-and-so for the Hall of Fame, so this is what I think. Or the BBWA did this thing about the MVP vote and I'm not happy about it and that's it. And there's this kind of perception about it. And having now been in the room for a few years, it's, oh, the, you know, the daughter of so-and-so, uh, this member who's from Dallas passed away. Uh, actually, the better example is, uh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name of the, um, the gentleman who passed away who was a writer in Dallas. Um, Blackie was, Sherrod? No, younger guy, like in his 40s. Oh, um, um, God, um, God, why are you doing this to me? I'm sorry. <laughs> And it, but but the point is like you know we we started memorials and we we do these yeah. things we say and it's not it's a given you know every each of us pays dues and with the dues we don't I don't know it's not it's not self gratifying or anything like that the point is to try to help it, it, it's like a guild in a sense it's trying to help writers do the best job they can trying to help writers have access because fans want to read about what Chris Davis has to say after the game and I feel like we're missing of that so I, I don't know you tell me and or the listeners. What does the BBWA do that maybe gets lost to the outside world beyond, yeah, people vote for the Hall of Fame? Well, you know, first and foremost, it's a, it's essentially, it's an industry, um, uh, guild is maybe, I guess, a good word, but 
um, it's an organization to ensure access, number one, I mean, and good working conditions. Um, that's the first issue we had when I was BBWAA president was the angels essentially getting rid of decent access yeah. uh, a press box for uh, baseball writers. You know, they didn't change anything on the broadcast level, you'll notice, but they got rid of what, what to, to that point had been admittedly probably the best press box in baseball mm. behind home plate in a, in a very low level um, and moved it down uh, essentially adjacent to the right field foul pole where you can't see home plate. No. You really cannot tell what's going on. Um, and so that uh, luckily the A's played there, the, the very first, their, their home opener, Anaheim's home opener. Um, and yeah, I, of course, immediately kicked up a fuss. Um, <laughs> I can remember Scott, Scott Miller, uh, a long time national baseball writer yeah. was absolutely so furious. I, he think I've never seen him mad before. Um, but at one point I heard him on the phone to, <laughs> to somebody with major league baseball swearing. I mean, it was just, a, it was a, it's just a very bad, um, you know, you can't, you can't see the game and yeah. that's your job. You have to be able to see the game. So, uh, the, the angels were made some, it, it's certainly not their PR department's fault. They, they tried everything they can do and they made sort of a half hearted effort. Uh, major league res- baseball responded immediately. Now they have no jurisdiction over teams, uh, buildings, but, uh, right. well, anything on the field, right. anything from the dugouts out, they do, but nothing, um, beyond that. And um, Pat Courtney from Major League Baseball came out. There we had a lot of meetings. They wedged in a very small, bare bones press box behind home plate on the broadcast level um, that holds about seven people. Um, obviously, I don't know what they're going to do this year right. with Otani. Um, so that's oh, an gosh. issue. I'm not no longer president, but that was the sort of one concession they made during um, right away when I was there. Was adding this little bare bones. So you know, there's not even. It's like electrical cords running here and there, and you know, wood wooden tabletops. It's they they went out of their way to make it you know begr- as begrudging as possible. No TV, no replays. So um, that's what the BBWAA is for: is to make sure that we can do our jobs. That's yeah. really it. Now the the things we're known for are the postseason awards, which are BBWAA owned. I love it when I hear people going like, you know, other people should be voting for MVP. Well, that's interesting because that we instituted the awards and own them. So yes. that's not going to happen. <laughs> right. Um, good luck with that. Um, but the Hall of Fame vote, um, which is always the thing that's contentious, uh, we are voting at the um, request and um, sort of the pleasure of the Hall of Fame. They wanted a large body. Um, larger than sort of the team broadcasters. And of course, with team broadcasters, I think there was concern if you're working for the team. Even Vin Scully has said that he felt like he never should vote for the Hall of Fame because hmm. he was employed by a team. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not, I actually think that they should open it up to, to sort of all media covering baseball on hmm. a regular basis, including the broadcasters. Um, yeah. because I'm, you know, there are broadcasters who have been around baseball far longer than most of the writers and, and are, um, every bit as knowledgeable and more so sometimes. Sure. Uh, but yeah, that's, they wanted a large diverse body and, um, to get sort of good. It's 75% threshold is, it's so hard to get. Very high. That's what people, I think that's what fans lose when they say like so-and-so didn't get in on the first ballot or anything like that. It's so hard. 75, you take 75% of anybody. You could get any voting body, and it's so hard to get to 75%. Uh, so I – and the criticisms sometimes are warranted. There are members who are not 
as uh, responsible, I think, in their vote. They don't take it necessarily as seriously yep. as others. Um, but those those who are certainly still covering baseball, um, I, I would say the vast majority take the, the vote extremely seriously. And again, when you've got a large voting body, 500, 600 plus, there's always going to be some idiots. There's always going to be some, you know, a couple crazies and a couple idiots. I, I don't care. You're not going to find a perfect body of six or 700 sure. people. So, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough. Now, when I was president was <laughs> a very unfortunate year because that was the year that Bonds and Clemens came onto the ballot. And oh, boy. Was really <laughs> so I spent a lot of time doing interviews in which I kept trying to say, like, it's an anomaly. A lot of voters didn't know what to do with this. Yeah. And that's really the biggest issue that we've faced is the steroid guys. Uh, and when you look at the population of baseball fans and you do polls of baseball fans, they're generally split on the topic, too. They're certainly not 75 percent in favor of the steroid guys going in. Um, as has the, the exactly the same with the with the baseball writers. They're not 75 percent to date that believe Bonds and Clemens should go in. I'm one of the people that's changed my mind over the years. Yep. Um, I think that the hall should be a reflection of sort of the generation. Um, and as other people from the steroid era started going in, guys who were uh, not connected necessarily with any evidence, uh, unlike Bonds or Clemens, who both had course cases that had some fairly compelling evidence, um, but who went in despite some, you know, being named in either reports or books, uh, you start to think like, well, okay, these guys are in. Uh, the principal, um, you know, obviously the commissioner of baseball from the era, so the principal managers, um, other executives, they're all going in, broadcasters, writers. Uh, is it Does it become fair to pin the entire era on two guys when there are so many other people connected with the era sure. and who maybe also did substances? That's kind of why that's when I changed my vote. Now, I absolutely understand the people that still do that do not vote for Bonds and Clemens. I didn't for several years. I don't absolutely don't condone cheating. I think it, it is the worst kind of cheating possible. It's so pernicious. You know, it's it's chemical. You can't detect it without a blood test. That's yep horrible and it's also very bad physically you know and a terrible message to send kids and you don't want kids doing steroids so you know i 100 percent understand why people do not vote for them but um you know it's a hall of fame and it's they want the generations represented so i've, I've switched uh before i get to the next question richard durrett is the name of the reporter who worked for yes, the Dallas. Uh, and, and since I brought them up, donations, this was 2014, but feel free, Richard Durrett Family Fund. The Texas Rangers also have a foundation as well. Um, and yeah, he left us too soon. Um, let's, uh, I want to touch on one more point about the Hall of Fame. It's the idea of changing your mind. And, uh, you and I talked about a gentleman who I felt should be in the Hall of Fame and you changed your mind. And that, uh, yeah. and Tim Raines had been retired for many, many years. He didn't put up any new stats. It's not like he suddenly came to the plate at age 47 and hit a triple. It's just that was the side. It's the same thing with Bonds and Clemens. People change their minds. And, again, I think that within the industry there are certain things we take for granted. It's, yeah, you you know, you know, read more. You, you hear more arguments. You get to it. But, from the again, from the outside, if you are a fan of Bonds or not a fan of Bonds and you say, well, wait a minute. You thought this and now this. Bonds is Bonds. He's the same guy. How should we be open to changing our minds when theoretically the argument is the same 
and I say this as somebody who does believe that people should change it, can be free to change their minds. But should we be, given the fact that the case is the same before or after, is it that if somebody has a good advocate, that should be enough to change somebody's mind? Or is it no? Once you establish something, you've got to go all the way with this person. Well, I, I mean, I don't know of any journalist who doesn't have it. I mean, I think you have to have an open mind when you're a journalist. And circumstances change. Information's change. Yeah. You know, in, in my, let's say my Bonds example, I felt circumstances had changed, particularly when Bud Selig went in right on the heels of yeah. Larusa and Lila. True. In fact, they were all at the same time. Um, and Pudge Rodriguez went in. I covered Pudge with the Rangers in mm-hmm. 95 and 96. One of my all time favorite players. Absolutely love the guy. Um, and, uh, no doubt 100% Hall of Famer, obviously, first ballot guy. Yeah. But when I covered him in 95, he looked like a 17 year old kid skinny little kid and in 95 he came in or 96 he came in uh and he looked twice the size and his head was huge and you know that was sort of the mid 90s we weren't quite yeah all clued in yet but uh you know and he did a lot of i've been working out and my mom's food and puerto rico and we all went kind of okay but you know looking back you go when testing they started testing he went back to looking like the 17 year old kid again yeah so you know, if you're going to vote for him and not Bonds, I don't I don't really understand, you know, th- these circumstances do change. Now, in with Tim Raines, a couple of things happened. First of all, you were very persuasive. <laughs> I did go back and look at all his numbers again. Yeah, um, I have always been and I like to consider myself still a small hall person. But Tom Verducci has um, and, and several others have uh, really persuaded me over the years that the more recent baseball eras are criminally underrepresented. Yeah, 80s especially. Yeah. Yeah, 80s especially. And I, you know, that I think really is what kind of changed my mind on Reigns was just the underrepresentation. Now, I'm not necessarily crazy that some of the other eras are overrepresented. There are a lot of, you know, you get a lot of slippery slope guys. Yeah, the Frankie Fresh like stuff when everybody got in for the 19, whatever, 31 Giants. Yeah, yeah. I don't like the flip. Okay, <sighs> this guy is in, so now you have to vote for that guy. Well, that, you know what? That guy should probably shouldn't have been in. Yeah. Um, that's why I tend to be small hall. Uh, there were a lot of years I either voted for one or two guys, mm. um, just the absolute slam dunks. I'm I'm changing my mind a little bit on that just simply in the interests of getting, you know, the eras a little bit more equitable. So, um and and you know, there are a lot of great the thing that gets me is the number of players that fell off the ballot too early. And some of my voting now is in an effort to keep guys, you know, I never did Kenny Lofton, voting Lou before. Whitaker, guys like that. Yeah, yeah, I mean Bobby Gritch. Bobby Gritch is I a mean, great there's, player. There's some, yeah. there's some there's some positions that are really under Third represented. Base, second base, yeah. Yeah, second base, third base, and with guys who fell off the the ballot way too soon. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of want to keep that from happening. So now I'm definitely voting for more than I have in previous years. And some guys that I generally probably would not vote for, but I want to keep them on the ballot. So we you always get a couple guys who are ripped every year for throwing one vote to somebody who isn't, you know, at all, who's a clearly not a Hall of Famer, but maybe it was a guy that covered who they liked. Yeah. I don't really have a huge problem with that. People got somebody got ripped for voting for Aaron Seeley the other. BJ Serhoff is my favorite. It, Although yeah, everybody you know, liked BJ Serhoff, so I mean I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure Sammy you know was what? happy. Yeah. If if you're not using all ten of your places, um, and you want to throw somebody sure. a vote, you know they're not getting in. I don't have a huge problem with it. It's not, this is not, um, we're not voting for a, a political office or something. No. This isn't going to affect, it's, it's just going to, you know. So I know Pedro Gomez got ripped a couple years ago for giving one guy one vote. And I thought, you know what, the, the Pedro's pals with the guy, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, 
but you know, that's, I'm not saying we don't take it seriously. We do take it seriously. It's nobody would ever do that if there was another spot for somebody they felt had to get in. Yeah. But we have talked at, at length about the rule of 10. And as you know, I had the uh, committee based BWA committee I chaired yep. on uh, potential changes to the voting system. And we presented our um, recommendations to the hall of fame and they didn't really take anything into account. They actually have since instituted a couple of things that we had suggested, but at the time they, they didn't. Uh, but what we, after much consideration, we didn't go full, you know, just vote however many guys down, you want, yeah. which the, yeah, there were, which a lot of people were in favor of. We kind yeah. of compromised a little bit and said 12, um, but they, they weren't interested in that. And that the rule of, of 10 does seem to still be a sticking point for a lot of people. Now, it's tough for a small hall person from like me to even get to 10. If I think I've only done it twice. Sure. But there are a lot of people who, who do really feel like they, they would like to be able to just, um, you know, expand things and get rid of some of this backlog. There certainly has been a backlog. But if you look at the last, you know, five, six, seven years, apart from the year I was BBWA president, yeah. <laughs> there have been a lot of guys going in. Yeah. I mean, the, the voting is getting done. The people who are, who should be getting in are getting in. I think the only two guys that you can really uh, argue have been getting the shaft are Bonds and Clemens. Yeah. If you if you feel that that's you know that the steroid thing should be overlooked, but otherwise I think um, yeah it's hard to argue with the selections over the the last few years. Yeah, one last hall point and I'll leave it. But um, I think the other thing that that people need to realize is that. There's the whole idea of being the best. If you are the best of your era for X number of years, then you should go in. You know, Roy Halladay is going to come up for uh, discussion. Roy Halladay was the best pitcher in baseball for two or three years. I think Roy Halladay is a Hall of Famer. That's fine. But then you get to guys like Musina and Schilling. And Musina and Schilling happened by coincidence of birth to have pitched in the same era as Randy Johnson, Roger Clemens, and Greg Maddox. And if you separate, if you, let's forget about steroids for a minute. Those three guys, in my mind, are three of the six best pitchers of all time. Uh, Clemens, Maddox, and Randy Johnson. So if Musina and Schilling are the, I don't know, 19th and 22nd best pitchers of all time, something like that, should they get penalized because literally just because of an accident of the hospitals or, or genetics or two <laughs> people got together, I don't really buy that. And that's a, that's a tough one. It's, it's tougher than you think because, like, the Jack, Jack Morris is going to go into the Hall of Fame this summer. Jack Morris won more games in the 80s than anybody else. Now, leaving aside how we feel about wins as a stat, Jack Morris was legitimately a very, very good pitcher for his era. But I would submit to you that in the 80s, we didn't have this preponderance of superstar monsters like Maddox and Clemens and Randy Johnson. And so Kurt Schilling and Mike Mussina, who were wonderful pitchers, don't quite get their due. And I don't know how we explain that to readers or listeners or whatever, that it's like, yeah, they were the fourth and fifth best guys of their era. That's still good enough. One could argue about whether or not that's good enough. But in my mind, I believe that still be, still should be good enough. And you kind of don't know where to go to present that argument. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're certainly dead on with that. I've, I voted for Messina every year. He's been on the ballot. Um, Schilling, I voted every year until this year. Not for his off the field stuff, although that didn't help him. I did want to, I, as I said, I did some strategic voting. I knew he wasn't mm -hmm. going to come off mm -hmm. the ballot. I will probably go back to him, but if I had one guy that I was going to take off to get on somebody that I was voting strategically, I it was going to be Schilling. So, <laughs> but, um, you know, Schilling's, to me, you, you judge everybody individually, right? Yeah. Um, when you look at Messina, um, and I, the slippery slope thing always gives me concern, but, Tom Glavin was not a um, borderline guy. And yeah. when you look at Messina's numbers and you look at Glavin's numbers, they're very similar. Yep. Um, 
Messina did was not, you know, even though he was in New York for so long, he wasn't pitching for quite the same high profile teams. But when you talk about high profile, yeah. Schilling, my goodness, his postseason, he, he is one of the top handful of great postseason pitchers. He's Colfax in the postseason. It was ridiculous as good as with Arizona too, not just with the, not just the bloody saw game. Schilling absolutely was incredible. In he absolutely yeah. dominated. And to me, if you, if you're looking at guys and it's sort of borderline, if he's got one thing that pushes yep. him over, I'll vote for him. And for me, with Schilling, the postseason pushed him over. I mean, just extraordinary. Um, but you, you know, you need to separate yourself. And, and in my mind, he did. Obviously, a lot of people don't feel that way. I, I do, you know, I've got my fingers crossed for Messina for next year. He's getting close, very close. Uh, and, uh, I think next year would be a good year for him. But, you know, the ballots never seem like they get any <laughs> easier, <laughs> no. Jonah, which is, which is great, right? I mean, what else yeah. would we talk about? Uh, and I want to ask you also about the postseason awards. Well, I believe they don't vote for Hall or postseason. And, you know, papers like the New York Times, I think the LA Times doesn't either, if I'm not mistaken. And that's an interesting one, too. Tyler Kepner is as good as it gets. He's great at his job. Everybody loves Tyler. Tyler does not vote. And as a voting body, you know, you could argue that we miss out when people like him aren't part of the process. But at the same time, I understand the point of view. You know, I get it that it's not – you know, for the sake of whatever it is, propriety or just we, I don't believe that people should vote whatever, but the Times decided to go that way. What do you make of that standpoint? You are a newspaper person. You do vote. You treat it seriously. You treat the hall seriously. Um, but also you're open-minded and open to other opinions. How do you feel about the fact that some people are barred from voting and or don't feel it's a good idea to vote? Yeah. You know what? This is when I was the BBWA president. president I actually um, – communicated with the newspapers and with it, then AP, AP now votes, yep. allows their voters to write. Um, I communicated with um, several of the editors about the issue because we, we do feel like we're missing some really excellent people yep. uh, when it comes to voting. And um, here's my argument that for why newspapers should allow um, their employees to vote and things like this. I, I, I think the time specifically has said that they don't think that they should be making news. That's yeah. their main argument. It's not like they're, they're worried about impropriety or like, you know, they think Tyler Kepner might be taking some sort of, you know, payout from Giancarlo Stanton because he <laughs> right. voted for him. Um, but the Times makes news. Anytime they write a restaurant review, they yeah. can make or rate break restaurants. They're making news anytime they do a Broadway review. I mean, what's the absolute number one driver, I think, especially in the early days for Broadway shows, is the New York Times Review, um, books, et cetera. And I mean, constantly, when is the New York Times not making news these days? Yeah. So um, depriving, you know, your very hardworking, longtime sports writers mm -hmm. from being able to participate in something, um, you know, that's they're going to be one one thirtieth of a vote. Uh, I, I think that that's that's just crazy. If if it if real if it really is the argument that it's news making versus not making news, how often is Tyler going to be the? Every once in a while, there is a reporter who is called out for, you know, either not voting for a pitcher for Cy Young or something like that. Maybe you could argue that is actually making news. That very rarely happens. But chances are, if you're one of thirty, you're you're not actually going to be the one making any sort of news. It's not going to be Tyler vote, Kepner voted this way or that way. A couple more. I want to go back to the athletics for a minute. This is now coming up on, gee, two decades you've been covering the A's. This is, uh, it's quite the stretch with one team and it's an interesting franchise, you know, for better or for worse. When you have a book written about you, when you have a Hollywood movie starting, starring Brad Pitt written about, made about you, 
It's an interesting one. It's not like every team has this. You know, they stand alone. And this is not the Yankees or the Red Sox, but the A's have managed to have this pocket of fame in a totally different way. Uh, you know, Billy long ago went upstairs, but he's still very much a part of the team. You've got David Force. You've got everybody else running the franchise. I'm trying to think of how to ask this. I guess the best way to go about it would be to say, does that permeate? So does this team, when you go in there and cover the team, does it feel like, oh, I could be covering the Kansas City Royals or the San Diego Padres? Or is it, oh, no, this is the Moneyball team, and it's always going to be the Moneyball team, and they're always going to have that in the background. And when they don't produce, then they Moneyball has failed. Well, you know what? I, I always find the A's interesting, and I think part of it is the, the front office, the fact that they are always trying to think of different ways yep. to do things. Uh, I, I Billy is very good at articulating why he does things. So is David. Yes. Um, Bob Melvin is very good at articulating why they do things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, they're, they're a joy to cover from that, um, standpoint. Fans sometimes, you know, when the A's make a move, fans don't like, they, you know, I get a lot of the, your Billy Beans mouthpiece or <laughs> why are you always like, you know, you're always on their side and like, well, no, I'm just a, I ask them why they do stuff. They give me back very reasonable answers usually. I mean, I don't, who loved the Yoannis Cespedes trade or the Josh Donaldson trade? Right. You know, those are two absolutely two of my favorite players I've watched play, much less cover. My goodness, um, but my job is to explain why the team did it. Billy did a very good job in both those cases of explaining. Well, maybe not, maybe not quite as good in the Josh Donaldson. No, trade. not so much. Yeah, um, and he has since then said, you know, that that one was. Um, Maybe not. I, although, you know, we, it's still to be determined because Frank Lombretto looks like he could be a pretty special player. Yeah. But that said, um, yeah, they, they are very and they do have good reasons and they're usually different. You know, they are not following the pack. They are specifically trying to do other things. Now, this Cespedes one was particularly interesting, as tough as it was, because he was by far the A's uh, most talented player. The knock on Billy Bean, of course, is that his teams can't get out of the first round. I've been mm-hmm. to the ALCS once in his 21 years. And he was absolutely bound and determined to get a dominating postseason pitching staff. He thought, this is what, this is what's going to do it. This is what's going to take us to the World Series yep. is dominating pitching. So he had to get John Lester. And he, you know, he was very upfront saying that we cannot win without getting somebody like John Lester. Uh, the real issue, um, I think was they had already gotten Samarja and they'd uh, gotten Jason Hamill. Initially, I think they felt like that was enough. And then Hamill came in and had a terrible first month. I actually wound up turning it around after that. But Hamill was so bad. I think that's when they thought we have to add one more. And that's mm. when they went and got John Lester. So, um, but that, that gives you some insight into sort of the thinking around the A's is, okay, the knock is we can't get out of the first round. Let's take care of that. And they did try to be proactive and change it. Didn't work. Came close. But didn't work. But uh, that's why they're fascinating. It's, you know, the, we're going to keep just chipping away and chipping away and until we figure out something. And now they're doing a rebuild, and it's the first time, really, since the very start of the Billy Bean era, that they've actually said rebuild. So um, I, I think this is just as interesting an era as any other because we're seeing something kind of new. Yeah, I'm excited about the uh, Matt Olson, Matt Chapman era. Those two guys are really. Pretty good debuts last year and pretty good potential cornerstone players. And we'll see what happens with Barreto and the rest. But uh, there's some pieces there. It's an interesting, interesting club. Um, I've got one more question for you, which I do at the end of every podcast, which is I always ask the guest for a life tip, a nugget of wisdom, something that is, def- you know, absolutely defines that person, a very Susan thing. And it could be something super serious, something not serious. It could be about 
your profession. It could be about just this silly superstition that you have. Anything. Uh, somebody meets you somewhere. They introduce themselves. I'm Bob. You say, I'm Susan. Bob says, well, I believe that, uh, you know, you can never have enough sunsets. Sunsets are beautiful. Or I believe that, that you know, determination is the key to life. Just try hard. You're going to do great. What is your one thing, Susan? Well, I, I think I have a lot of things. Okay. <laughs> But the one thing, you know, when I, I get asked a lot by aspiring journalists and baseball writers, um, the, the most important things to know, and I always tell them the most important thing, especially when you get a new job, uh, is to, um, and this is going to be a little bit more than one thing, but just in general, yep. be the first person there, mm-hmm. learn every aspect of your job and everyone else's job uh, and to make yourself indispensable. And listen and learn. Don't just go in thinking you know everything and that the people that are around you are, are idiots and you know how to do it better. Sit back and watch and, and see how they're doing things. And, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe they don't actually know what they're doing. But by and large, you're going to learn from the people doing the job. Um, and then, you know, you can kind of start working your way in a little bit later. But um, initially, try to figure out by watching. Great stuff. I like it. Great lessons for any young journalist. And uh, Susan, I really appreciate your time. It's always great to talk to you. Uh, I hope spring training treats you very well, and I hope it makes for another exciting year of uh, Oakland A's baseball. And thank you for doing this. Fantastic. Thanks, Jonah. Anytime.